I am telling you now before it happens. So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open either with a print Bible or on your phone to John chapter 14. Um, I wanted to give you the context of this passage, and so we played a significant portion of John chapter 13 as well. But what you see here is this takes place during the Passover meal, during the Last Supper. And it's, it's an incredibly intimate time where Jesus is sharing his heart with his disciples and therefore sharing his heart with us. There are a few passages of Scripture that tend to be in the top um, 
favorites for most people. For many people, Psalm 23 with the comfort where it talks about how the Lord is my shepherd and how he will be with us even in the valley of death. That's a very um, dear and near passage of scripture. For others, John chapter 3 where um, God says, or Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then this passage here in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus understands a troubled heart. In fact, that's really where we're going to focus in. As we've been looking at these encounters with Jesus, what I hope you see today is how Jesus can encounter your anxiety how he can meet you right where you are in the midst of uncertainty and struggle and hurt. He understands. In fact, this passage here in John 14, 1, Jesus promises to overcome our fears. When he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, he uses a word there that's uh, it's a beautiful word. It's the word in, in Greek is tarasso, and it literally can mean to boil or shake. So what he's describing is he's saying, when your heart feels like it's shaking, when it feels like it's about to fall apart, when the stress upon you is so great, that's when I'm reminding you of what you need to do, of where you need to turn in the midst of that pain. And Jesus understands your pain, your struggle, your fear, your anxiety. In fact, he went through so much emotional, relational, and physical pain that we have described in the scripture that he truly can comprehend exactly what you've gone through. You may remember in in, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, a passage that we'll look at uh, very, very soon as we're coming into the trials of Jesus It says that Jesus, as he was praying, literally sweat drops of blood. The the medical term for that is hemotohydrosis. And and it comes on because there's just so much weight upon the individual emotionally that out of their sweat pores, blood begins to seep. He did that while he was praying for you and for me. He did that as he was preparing to bear the weight of your sin and my sin upon the cross. So he understands it. And even in this passage, he uses this exact same word back in chapter 13 in verse 21, where he says, um, after he's saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's the exact same word that John used describing Jesus. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What he's saying there, and and the, the video, which does a great job of helping put us in the scene, doesn't do a great job of showing the anguish that's communicated in the scripture there. It says that when Jesus said that, his heart was shaking. Now, what a beautiful picture of our Lord. We understand what stress and anxiety can do to us. In fact, I've got a little chart that just talks a little bit about how powerful stress and anxiety is on your body. Maybe you can relate to some of these things. In your brain, it causes difficulty concentrating, anxiety, depression, irritability, mood, uh, moodiness, and mind fog. That I can relate to that one maybe more than any of them right there. Mind fog hits me all the time, and it just blows in like a bank coming in across the ocean. In our heart, stress can cause uh, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and increased risk of heart attack and stroke. Why? Because our heart is shaking. That's how God's Word describes it. It can affect your your joints and your muscles, bringing inflammation and tension and aches and pains. It affects our immune system. It makes us less able to be able to fight off diseases and viruses. It affects our skin. It causes hair loss, um, brittle nails, dry skin, acne, 
all kinds of things. I, I can't talk about any more stress because I'm starting to feel bad all over. But that's what it does to us. What are we to do with it? Well, what I want to do is show you a little bit of the Lord's heart. I told you in, in verse 21 of chapter 13 that Jesus' heart was shaking when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that act that Jesus does that's portrayed there, when he identifies who will betray him as Judas, he says that the one who dips with me in the dish, and as I showed you last week from the Passover, what that actually was was a dipping of the, of the bread with the bitter herbs into what's called the heroset. The heroset was a, a mixture of fruit and honey and wine and nuts that were designed to look like the mortar that the Jews had to use to make bricks when they were building the cities of Egypt in slavery. And that dish is one meant to be sweet because... Right before it, they had taken the bitter herbs. They had eaten the horseradish, which um, just burns through your sinuses. And it's just, um, if you've you've not had really, truly fresh horseradish, you're missing out. I mean, it's my favorite part for our boys, especially as they were growing up and as we would celebrate Passover, they would challenge one another to see who could eat the most horseradish at one time. And their faces would all be red and on fire. And, um, and it was probably really not good for them. But we're, they were boys. And of course, I did it with them. So it was, it was a good thing. But that bitterness was to remind them of what life was like in slavery. And it's a picture that reminds us of the bitterness of sin. But then the heroset is something sweet. It's a picture of Grace how God can meet us even in our sin and take that which is broken, that which is in rebellion against God, and he can transform it into something sweet. And so when Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will betray him, what he is doing with that simple gesture is he's reminding Judas even then that grace is available. He doesn't have to choose this this path. The scripture says that Satan had already entered into him and his path was set. But I want you to see how Jesus responds to it. How would you respond if you knew not only from early on, from the beginning of his ministry, who would betray him, but Jesus knew that the moment of his betrayal was right now? What would be your response? Would it be grace or would it be anger? What we see in Jesus is that his heart is troubled because he loves Judas. You see, his love for Judas and his love also for Peter, who in that same meal, Jesus would tell Peter that before the rooster crows three times this night, you will betray me. Jesus loves us, even when we act against him, even when we're his enemy. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's the kind of God that we have. A God who knows everything about you, everything about me, every sin, every rebellion, every secret. And he says, I love them so much, I'm willing to die for them. And he did. That's our God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it an incredible picture of his grace, of his goodness? Is it any surprise then when God would go to that extreme to reach you and I that he commands you and I to love our enemies, to reflect his love? 
Is it any wonder that when he's describing and answering the question, who is my neighbor, he uses a parable that describes our neighbor as someone who is racially different, culturally different, religiously different, politically different. In other words, chances are one we would describe as our enemy. He says, that's your neighbor that you are to love. If you're to love others as I have commanded you, this new commandment I've given you, if you're to love others as I have loved you, that's what it looks like. It looks like giving grace to those who are actually in opposition to you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Well, how much does Jesus love us? There's a beautiful promise that we have in this passage. I want you to back up a few verses into John chapter 13, verse 1. I want you to see how John describes the beginning of this Passover meal. He says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that a beautiful saying? It means God didn't give up on him. He didn't give up on Peter, even though Peter denied him. He didn't give up on Judas, but Judas chose to give up on God. And his fate was set because he refused the mercy, grace, and love of our Lord. But here's what that should tell us as well. God will love you to the end. He will not give up on you. Christ owned his, uh, loved his own all the way through death itself. Jesus loves you to the very end. And Jesus' love to us, loving us to the very end, means two things that I hope will be an encouragement. First of all, it means that your future and my future, because we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, is absolutely secure. Right now, we are in a season where there's great uncertainty. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the effects that will happen because of the virus and because of the economy and the strife and stress that's in our world. We can't see what will happen next. But we can live absolutely secure because Jesus promises to love you and me to the very end. He will not let go of any who belong to him. That means Sickness or poverty or fear and, or anxiety or persecution, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans that I hope will be a, a powerful reminder to you. He says in chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, here's God's word on it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's promise to you. That's what it means when John describes it and says that Jesus loves us, loves his disciples, loves those who, who place their trust in him to the very end. It means he won't let go. If you are his, heaven, a new earth, the resurrected body, the restoration, all those things are, are coming. That's part of the future that we have. And, and you cannot be made unhis because he made you his to begin with. His plans for you are good. He himself has called us to be his own. And we cannot squirm out of his grasp. Jesus loves us to the end means not only that our future is secure, but it means that our present is secure as well. No fear, no threat, 
no anxiety will pull us from his love and his care. We know that with our minds, but that is so difficult to remember when we're struggling, when we feel our heart begin to shake because of the circumstances around us. And many times the reason for us, the reason why our heart shakes is that we feel absolutely out of control. And so everything within us begins to to turn in on itself and we're so desperate for for control that our, our body begins to take on these symptoms of anxiety and stress and it can be incredibly powerful. Now as I say that, I'm gonna point to to what Jesus says is the answer of what we are to do with that. But I want to give a disclaimer that make sure, make sure I don't miscommunicate anything. God made us holistic. We are body, mind, spirit, and soul. And those pieces all work together. And God has given us incredible resources to help us um, address the needs of each of those aspects of who we are. God has given us medicine. He's given us an understanding. Um, He's given us doctors and nurses and, and technicians who understand how the body works. And so there are times when because of the effects of stress and anxiety, the thing that our body very much needs is medication and treatment. He's also given us treatment for the mind. There are times when therapy is exactly the right thing that is needed for our minds. Additionally, he's given us the the wisdom to know that eating healthy and exercising are good for our bodies and that uh, impacts our mind, our souls, and our spirits. But he's also given us clear instruction of what we are to do when we're shaken in our heart with our spirits. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. There's a spiritual component that if we do not address that, none of the other things that are working on the symptoms will truly be effective in delivering us from the power and grip of anxiety and fear. Because ultimately at its root, even though the symptoms may be physical and they may be mental, ultimately the root is in our spirits. It is a spiritual battle a spiritual wrestling, and therefore we must address it spiritually as well. Jesus wants us to know that we are secure, absolutely secure, not just in the future, but in the present. On the basis of his death, your present is secure. It is proven in his heart. He will love you to the end because it is his very heart and you are the object of his love. This is the love of Jesus the groom, an unconditional love for his bride. I told you last week as we celebrated the um, Lord's Supper that the Lord's Supper ultimately is a picture of uh, and what we see in Passover, it connects the Passover to the Lord's Supper or communion and the marriage supper of the land. And it's a picture of Jesus' wedding vows to you and I. Because that last cup of the Passover is, I will take you to be my people. And, excuse, yes, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. It's a promise to one another. And the whole picture that you have throughout The Passover and through much of the scripture is the pursuit of a loving groom going after his bride. In fact, even this passage where it says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's a picture of a Jewish wedding. Because what would happen in a Jewish wedding is that once they had um, formed their agreement, the ketubah, the binding contract uh, of their relationship, it would be the responsibility of the groom to go and make a dwelling place, a bridal chamber for his bride. Usually that bridal chamber was made in his father's house or attached to his father's house. And it was up to the father to declare when it was ready. And he would say to his son, son, go and get your bride. And in those days, they made a great sport out of not letting anyone know exactly when it was going to come. Because they wanted people to anticipate and be ready and, and for the excitement to build because the wedding is coming and pretty soon the groom's going to come and everything's going to be announced and you're going to be invited in to the marriage supper. 
In this passage, Jesus is reinforcing his love for you and for me. And so when he says to you, do not let your heart be troubled, it is the voice of a groom speaking to the bride that he loves with all his heart, saying, I will take care of you. That's what he wants us to understand. It may look like your world is falling in. You may feel like you're lost and that there is darkness that's going to overwhelm you. But Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What he invites us to do is to come to him. Now, here's what happens, at least for for many of us, is instead of coming to the Lord, when I begin to feel stressed and anxious and and the circumstances are going in ways that are totally outside of my control, the first thing that happens to me is I have a tendency to get lost in my own mind. And I have a a picture here in just a moment that we'll put up uh, of a maze. And yeah, go to the one before that. That one fits it well. But all right, this is... This is me, okay, when I'm beginning to deal with stress and with anxiety, is I kind of go into myself, and I start thinking, and, I, and, and the, what, what's going on is I think I can think my way out of it, which doesn't even sound good when I say it, but that's what we try to do, and is that we think we can find our way into it. The most common response is to get caught up in a labyrinth of thoughts, Our thinking becomes a maze of conflicting ideas and emotions that build on one another and if left unchecked, lead to fear, anxiety, anger, and doubt. At least for me. Maybe you guys are way beyond me, but for me, that's what happens. And it's so easy to get caught in our own minds. It's important to remember that when that begins to happen, we are to go to the Lord because it's really... um, common for us to get stuck there. And what we need to do is ask others to pray for us, um, to be able to get out of that thought maze. And then what we need to do is follow the instruction of the scripture, which tells us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's what happens. When When I'm in that maze and I begin to examine my thoughts and I say, Lord, help me to take those thoughts captive, I begin to discover that what I've been thinking really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it At the very least, even if it's um, seeing all the worst-case scenarios, it's seeing more than one of those worst-case scenarios at a time. And yet only one thing can happen. There's only one outcome that would happen. And yet I begin to build all those on the end, and panic begins. But when I examine those thoughts and I pray and say, Lord, would you enable me to take every thought captive, and make it obedient to you. In other words, help me to focus my minds on who you are, what you have promised, and and what you have told me to do. Help me to follow the pattern that we see in Philippians um, chapter 4, verse 6, where we're to rejoice in the Lord always, and we're to think on that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which is of good report. When we begin to take our thoughts captive, our minds are set free. Because the walls of that maze begin to come down. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Because we need each other. Does anybody else ever do this or is it just me? Do you get stuck in the maze of your brain? I do all the time. Here's how we can help one another. I want to encourage us to to use a little code with one another and simply say to each other, mind maze. Okay, it alliterates. So it works, okay? And all that means is if I say to you mind maze, that means I don't even know what I'm thinking. It's just all confused up here. And so when I say mind maze to you, what I'm asking you to do is would you simply pray that God will enable me to take every thought captive? You know, it doesn't need to be explained because all all our response, all we really need to do is intercede for one another. I believe that if we start doing that, we'll begin to come closer and closer together and we'll see more and more victory in the battle of the mind. So maybe that's something you can use as couples, as as friends, as just the church. 
And, you know, if you don't like mind maze, go, I'm in the thought labyrinth. Does that one sound better? So, you know, it sounds a little more sophisticated. But all of us go through this, and we need one another to help us get out. Because here's, here's the great danger. If we do not win the battle there and take every thought captive and then bring it back to obedience in Christ, to believing in God, what will happen is in almost every case it will lead to idolatry. Because you and I are not capable of dealing with the stress and the fear and the anxiety on our own. And so what we have a tendency to do is to turn to idols. Now, not idols necessarily that you would bow down that are made out of, out of wood or stone or gold, but we have idols of the heart that we have a tendency to turn through. And, and some of them are, are bad things, things that are destructive, things like pornography or an abuse of alcohol or drugs. We can turn to those things as idols because we're seeking to find comfort and release in something other than God. But it also can be very good things. Our work can become an idol. Our relationships can become an idol. Food, which is necessary for the body, can become an idol, either by avoiding it or obsessing on what we do uh, pursue and what we eat and trying to take some control. You see, a good thing can become a God thing when we give it the rightful place that belongs only to God. When we seek to find comfort and strength and deliverance in anything other than God, it can be an idol. And what is so dangerous is when we turn to idols, there is a wall that separates us, that begins to push us away from fellowship and unity with God, that unless we confess it and repent and come back, it will take us farther and farther into the very fear, doubt, depression, and struggle that we're trying to get out of in the first place. So it's very important that we learn to do this. The way Jesus instructs us is is this. Here's what he tells us to do with our fear, with our anxiety. He says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. If you're under stress, if you're feeling like this life is too much for you, that, that you just, the circumstances you're going through are just too painful, he's saying, come to me and I will give you rest. And the truth is, the sooner we come to him, the more beautiful and the more restful it is. Take my yoke upon you, he says, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The God of the universe is saying, whatever you're facing, whatever you're struggle with, whatever is going on inside, bring it to me. Come to me. How amazing that the God of the universe is that interested in you and I that he cares about even those struggles that are happening in our minds, even the uncertainties that we have about ordinary things. He says, come to me. And this verse has has taken on new meaning to me. Do you realize that this is, I think this is correct. Um, If not, please correct me. But I believe this is the only place in all of Scripture that God describes His heart. We have all kinds of Scripture that describes His righteousness, His holiness, His character, His power, His wrath. But here, Jesus describes His very heart and He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That means he's approachable and he's humble. That's why God places such value on humility for us as his followers is that our hearts need to reflect his. And humility is not thinking less or badly of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself. It is thinking of others, which is exactly what Jesus does. 
He says, I am gentle and lowly because my heart is focused on you, on your needs, on what you're going through. And I'm inviting you to come to me and I will give you rest. I will place my yoke, my, my life upon you and help guide you, direct you right through the difficulty, right through the struggle. It's a great book that, that I've been reading recently called Gentle and Lowly that's, that's focused in on this verse by Dane Ortland, And, and he, he gives these steps. He, he basically says, I, I changed it a little bit, but he, he basically says the Christian life all comes down to these two steps. I'm going to make it and say, here's how we are to deal with anxiety and stress. Step number one, go to Jesus. Okay? Step number two. See step number one. That's really all it is, okay, is just keep going to him. That's what he invites to me. He says, come to me, come to me, come to me. The only way we truly find deliverance from fear, from anxiety, from the shaking of our heart is going to Jesus. He cares for you far more than you know, and his plans for you are very, very good. So what else does Jesus say? He, he tells us to believe in him, to come to him. And what he's saying is, it's interesting because he says, you believe in God, so he's saying you have a faith relationship. Now what I want you to do is to believe in me, and it doesn't just mean believe that I am who I say I am, but believe what I've told you. Believe that I'm inviting you into my presence on an ongoing basis. Believe me when I say, come to me and you will find rest for your souls, that that is really what will happen. See, oftentimes, that's where we get stuck. Is we have faith, we believe in God, but in truth, we don't think God is that interested in us. But he is. So what else does Jesus tell us? Well, Jesus tells us later on in verse 6, he promises us life, truth, and the way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what that means. First of all, Jesus is the life that you and I truly long for. Jesus promised us life abundant. Not the comforts of this world or success or wealth or even health, but a joy that transcends the brokenness of this world and grows deeper and deeper for all eternity. I believe that joy is something that will get better and better and better because we will experience more and more of who God is and he is the very fountain of joy. That joy, that life is found in Jesus, in living united with him through faith in him and the accomplishment of what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection. Secondly, Jesus is the truth that we need. Truth is not a principle to apply to our lives or a set of ideas that we conform to. Truth is a person. Is a person filled with character, with understanding, with power. Jesus says he is the truth. We think about our culture and how difficult it is to know what is true. It is so difficult when you, when you see things on the news, you know, the first thing we do is we look to see what source it's coming from. And chances are, based on what source it's coming from, no matter what the article says, if it's a source that we agree with or that often agrees with us, we believe it no matter what it says. On the other hand, if it's from a source that we disagree with for whatever reason, it would take, you know, just pound, um, trying to think of the right metaphor, it would take tons and tons of information in order for us to overcome our doubts, Right? Because ultimately, what we look for in truth is character. That's why truth ultimately is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. 
He is the truth. And all truth emanates out from His being, from His nature. All truth flows from who Jesus is as the creator of everything. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. Truth is a person. And for us to find wisdom to live our lives in a way that, um, that truly gives us direction, that truly points us in the way that we should go, we need to look to Jesus. And the way that we best discover who He is is through His Word. That's why the psalmist says that your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The person of truth will show us where to go, what steps to take. And I love that picture in the Psalms because the the whole idea of a light into my, my feet is that it only really gives me enough light to make the next step. There's some light that's shining out. You know, what I want is, you know, to put the beacons on, you know, put the brights on on the car so I can see as far down the path as possible. That's not what he promises. He promises us enough light to make the next step. And the truth is, that's all I really need because if he gave me more, I would start to wander and and not trust him as much as I know my heart. Thirdly, Jesus tells us that he is the way to God the Father. The The entrance into this life, this truth, and the way is Jesus by faith. Thomas Kempis summarizes Jesus' words well. He says, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, and the life for which you must hope. Wise words. Because Jesus is the way to God. And what he has done is he has given us instructions in the way that we are to go. Um, if I had a little more time, I would use a little illustration. Um, but I'll just ask you, uh, would, would everybody in the room point north for me right now? Just come on. Everybody, everybody come on. Don't be bashful. You know where it is. Point north. Point north. Uh, okay, we have a few discrepancies as to where north is. Um, everybody good with your answer? You're, you're confident? No. Uh, that's okay. At least you're honest. Okay, now look at that. How if, if, if we're dependent upon this crowd to determine where we are to go, how many of us would end up actually going north? It looks like about half because we were pretty equally divided. What Jesus says is, you're tr- and what we try to do is we try to find the way on our own. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but its end is destruction is what the scripture says. If we simply follow our own thoughts, it is very easy to get lost in the way. And so what we need is we need a reference point that points us the right direction, and that's, that's what a compass does. Okay, so if I was to pull out the compass and point it, you would discover that north is generally that direction, okay? So for those of you who went that way, um, you're headed south, just so you know. That's okay. It's a place of grace. Don't worry about it. All right, but we need, it, we need a, a compass to help us understand what the direction is. That's the Scripture. God's Scripture shows us the way that we are to go. But you know what is so much better than a compass? And, and I know some of you are going to think a GPS. What is so much better than a GPS or a phone that has Google Maps and Waze and every other application? It's a guide who's already been there, who will walk alongside of you and take you in the way that you should go. And that's what Jesus has given to us in the Holy Spirit. He says, my word will point you in the right direction and my Holy Spirit will walk side by side, step by step with you to show you how you are to live. God has provided everything that we need to be able to follow him, to come to him. He is the way. And Jesus tells us very clearly that the only way to the Father is through Him. Let me make a a little point of clarification. This is not saying that 
about our religion. There's a certain sense where we ask the question, where people often, uh, skeptics often ask the question, aren't all religions the same? And the answer, at least as I understand it, is both no and yes. There's a certain degree in which all religions are the same. Because religion is a human attempt to get to God. Religion in all of its form is humanity's attempt to justify themselves to God or to pretend that they themselves are God. That's what religion is. The gospel, however, the good news of Jesus Christ is not a religion. It is not us trying to get to God. It is God who has come to us who has come to rescue us. And that's what makes it so radically different. The gospel is God coming to us to bring us to himself because we cannot save ourselves. And here's how that plays out in in our life. This is why um, religion, if it is simply our attempt to try to get to God, it leaves us more and more empty. Because religion says, if I measure up, I may be accepted. If I'm good enough, God will love me. The focus is on me and what I do. And ultimately, that produces pride and leads to despair. The gospel, on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, says this, I am accepted by him when I place my trust in him, so I obey him out of love. It tells me that my condition is bad, that I'm a a sinner, but that Jesus died for me. He came to rescue me. The focus is on Jesus and what he has done, which sets me free. It produces humility and rest in the love of God, and I am therefore motivated to love others as God has loved me. In its most simple form, that's the difference between the gospel and and religion. And so Jesus sounds exclusive when he says, I am the way to the Father, or I am the way. No one comes to the Father except me. It may not be a popular statement, but it's true because God has come to us. And that is radically, radically different. One more point, and that is that Jesus' promise is incredibly personal. He tells us in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, excuse me, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I hope you'll, you'll underline that in your, in your app or in your Bible. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, it is personal. Yes, he's preparing a place for all believers, but it also is a personal place with you and I in mind. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Last year, I did a a whole series on life after death and and what that uh, looks like according to the scripture. And so I'm not gonna take the time to unpack it, but if you have questions about that, feel free to write me, and I'll do my best to try to give you material to help you to understand it. But what we need to know for today is this. Jesus has gone before us, and he's not just gone before us to prepare this place. The scripture tells us where he was going. That Jesus was first before he went to heaven to prepare a place for us. That Jesus was going to the cross to pay for our salvation. That's part of his going to prepare a place for us. Jesus was going to the grave to conquer death. Jesus was going to raise from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection and the promise that not only do we have life after death, some existence, but we have a physical life after death, a bodily resurrection that God promises at his return. And that it is so much more than anything we can imagine. We're not just disembodied spirits out there floating on clouds. 
It is a real, physical, beautiful, perfected world. A new heaven and a new earth with everything that you imagine now that you think of as beautiful and as good will be magnified because sin is removed and we see the perfection of what God had created. And he's been preparing a place for you and I since the very time when he said these words. It's going to be amazing. Jesus was going to prepare a place for us and Jesus is returning for us to be with him. Because ultimately, here's the thing you need to hold on to. When you think about heaven, oftentimes we can get distracted because the scripture doesn't give us a lot of details. Heaven ultimately is all about being with Jesus. He says that where I am, you may be also. I want you to think about that. For many of us in this room, this place is not the home from which we come. It's not the nation we were born in. It's not necessarily, it's really tough to ask. In fact, the worst question you can ask an international is where's home? Because we're all confused, you know? I mean, but ultimately the answer is this. Home is where the people who my heart connect to are at. And so home can be in many different places because home ultimately is focused on people more than a place. And the true home of our heart is Jesus Christ. He's prepared a place for you and for me. So what do we do with all this? We recognize that, what, that when our heart is shaking, when we're feeling overwhelmed by stress, Jesus is saying, believe in me. Believe in the promises that I've given you. Come to me, and you will find rest for your soul. You will find blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would would take the truth of your word. and Lord, you would overcome the inadequacies and the distractions. And Lord, that you would allow it to sink deep into the hearts and life of each person here. Lord, let us, in this moment, be in awe that you're a God who loves us so deeply, who cares about us so personally, a God who loved us when we were yet enemies with you. And now that we have come to you, how much more beautiful is your love? Lord, for those who are here today that do not know you, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from trying to get to you on their own, trying to go through religion, and instead they simply call upon the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, would you save me? May they find life in you today. Lord, for the others that are here, especially those who are anxious, who are struggling, who are fearful, Lord, would you meet them at that point? Would you enable them to believe in you? And Lord, would you fulfill the promise of your word? Would you give them rest for their souls? Lord, I ask your blessing upon each person here. May you make your face to shine upon each and every one of them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.